Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from John chapter 12. Give your ear to God's infallible word. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to consider the gospel in this text, the good news that Jesus has saved us through his death and given us an example through his death. Plant this word deep into our hearts by the power of your spirit working in us and among us. And in the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Do you hate your life in this world? Or are you in love with it? Hating your life in this world is the most difficult thing you'll do. Most difficult thing there is to do. There's nothing more difficult. But there's also nothing more glorious. And it's what Jesus did and it's what Jesus calls you to do. We pick up this week in John 12, verse 20. It's been a while since we were in John. But verses 20 to 26 come to us in a context, as every passage of Scripture does. They're connected to the previous passage, verses 12 to 19 in particular, which we considered several months ago. And the setting is this, it's Passover, which is the climax of Israel's year. Her church year. A day earlier, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Electricity's in the air. Everyone's talking about Jesus and what happened. Some like him, some don't, but everyone's interested at some level. And the Jewish leaders had their hit list. And at the top of it was Jesus. And the next on the list was Lazarus. They wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. They wanted them dead. And others, though, were swarming, trying to get to see Jesus out of admiration. The great crowd that was there had come for the feast, our text says, which is Passover. 
And they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And what do they do in response? Well, they get a bunch of palm branches. And they go out to meet him, shouting in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus had found a young donkey to sit on as he rode into town. And this symbolic act, you remember from last time, fulfilled Zechariah 9, verse 9, which John quotes in verse 15 there, John 20, 12, 15, where he says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. These shouts of Hosanna were the crowd's way of saying, Here comes salvation. Here he comes, he's right there. They saw Jesus as their deliverer their long-awaited Savior that they had been anticipating. Hosanna comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, and it's, it's a praise line in there. And a hundred years earlier, a little more, the Jews had sung this line from Psalm 118 when the warrior Judas Maccabeus drove out the Greeks from Jerusalem. The crowd in John 12 saw Jesus as a new and greater Judas Maccabeus. Like Judas, Jesus would drive out the occupying Gentiles. Jesus would liberate Israel from her oppressors. And then he would set up the throne of David, the everlasting, the eternal throne of David in Jerusalem. And even the palm branches were symbolic of the crowd's political aspirations. After Judas Maccabeus, after, after his events happened, his brother Simon Maccabeus drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel. And after that happened, or when that happened, he, he was fated with music and and the waving of palm branches. Waving palm branches was symbolic of nationalistic pride, a nationalistic spirit. It signaled hope that Israel's liberator, Israel's deliverer, Israel's Messiah, Israel's king had finally arrived on the scene to fulfill all of their hopes and dreams for their nation. The crowd fully expected to see Jesus issue a call to arms and then to drive out the hated Romans. In the midst of this tumult, the Lord, Jesus, did something that the surging mobs, the crowds, could not understand. He fulfilled Zechariah 9.9 by riding into town on a donkey. And the text says the disciples did not understand this. They didn't get it. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He was identifying himself as Israel's king. But he was doing more than that. He was, he was also saying that he wasn't like other kings and other conquerors 
in the world, in history. He wasn't like Caesar. He wasn't like Alexander the Great. He wasn't even like Judas Maccabeus. The donkey was a royal beast, but it was also an animal of peace, a a humble animal. It indicated Christ's lowliness as well as his kingship. So while the crowd had their symbolic palm branches, Jesus had his symbolic, symbolic donkey. Jesus was the king, as the people thought, but he was a new and different kind of king. He wasn't the king that they thought he was. Ultimately, he's much better. But if they had understood what kind of king he is and how he was going to become king in particular, they would have cast him aside. That's not what they were looking for. The excitement would have just faded fast. The crowd wanted a king with a sword. But this king was going to a cross. And because of that, eventually the excitement did fade. Verse 16 says that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So it all made sense after the resurrection. But at this point in the story, the people were still excited. There was still hope that he was the one, the coming one that they were looking for. And verse 17 says that those who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead were going around talking about it, bearing witness, it says. Verse 18 says that those who heard about the resurrection of Lazarus were coming to meet Jesus. They hadn't seen it, but they had heard about it and they wanted to see Jesus. And the Pharisees sum it all up in their exhortation to themselves in verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. You can hear the frustration. Look, the world has gone after him. So they're frustrated with one another and themselves. It was bad enough that some considered Jesus the king of Israel. But now the whole world seems to be going after this man. And wanting him to be their king as well. And so this brings us to our text today. And right off the bat in verses 20 to 22. John records an unexpected event. Now remember John left out more events and details in the life of Jesus than he included. So this this means that what he includes is important. It's significant. John and the Holy Spirit want us to consider what might seem to us as a non sequitur, something that doesn't follow, or is it really that important? Look with me at John 12, verses 20 to 22. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Why is this little detail important, this little side event it might seem to us John wants us to see that Jesus came to save Gentiles as well as Jews that's the good news that's the good news and it's good news to us since most of us if not all of us here are 
Gentiles. In the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, shortly after the birth of Christ, who comes to see Jesus? It's Gentiles from the east, the wise men, come to see Jesus. And here in John 20, 12, verse 20, <clears throat> shortly before the cross, Gentiles from the west, from the Greek-speaking part of the empire, not necessarily people of Greek descent, ethnicity, they come to see Jesus. As one preacher put it, Gentiles framed both sides of Jesus' life. Jesus is more than the Jewish Messiah. He's more than the king of Israel. He's the king of the whole world. He rules, even now, all the nations. And he saves people from every ethnic background. So at this point, Jesus had been presented as the king of Israel and the world. And he's been pursued by Jews and Gentiles alike. We can imagine how exhilarating his next words must have been to those who heard them originally. Verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Surely the hearts of these people were about to explode out of their chests. This was exactly what they wanted to hear. Israel's deliverer had finally arrived, and in his own words, he was about to be glorified. I'm on my way to glory, Jesus says. I really will be something to see. Those, Those Greeks, they're right. I'm the one. I'm Israel's Messiah. Everyone will want to see me. And it's all about to climax in my glory. When the Father finishes glorifying his Son, Jesus, he'll truly be the most glorious man in the universe. And those who knew their Bibles would have heard in verse 23 echoes of Daniel 7. Daniel 7 contains a vision of the Son of Man. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man, that's the terminology used there, the Son of Man receives a worldwide dominion that would never end. Surely, this is the glory of which Jesus speaks. It's all coming together. Surely, Christ was about to announce his campaign against the Romans, and initiate his kingdom and fulfill Daniel Daniel 7 about the Son of Man, which is about the Messiah, about Israel's king. How disappointing verse 24 must have been. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? They're about to find out that Jesus is a different kind of deliverer. A different kind of king. This king will rule 
through death. He will conquer through the cross. And his illustration is simple. When you hold a kernel of wheat in your hand, if you pluck one off the stem and you hold it in your hand, you can't see everything that's in it. You can't detect all of the potential inside this head of grain. Only after it's gone into the ground and after it's died does it become fruitful. During the planting season, a grain is thrown into the ground as if into a tomb. And there it dies. It dies to itself, we could say. And eventually it becomes a resurrection plant that produces fruit, grain. Jesus was telling this crowd that he would fulfill his kingly role, Israel's Messiah's role, by dying. He would produce resurrection fruit first by dying and going into the ground. What Jesus says to the people in verse 24 is this, my path to glory is through death. Yes, I'll bear much fruit. And and a lot of that fruit's going to be Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews. But I can't bear this fruit unless I fall into the ground and die, as it were. If I, if I, if I were to leave the road that I'm on, if I were to take a different path, an easier path, other than the one of suffering and death, I would remain alone like a seed that just stays in the bag. Never makes it to the ground. And then no one would be saved. Neither Jews nor Greeks. And there'd be no glory anywhere on the earth. No glory for me. No glory for you. No glory for anyone. True glory can only ever come on the other side of death. On the other side of self-denial. True glory, which is resurrection glory, can only ever come on the other side of death to self. And this principle doesn't only apply to our Lord. Jesus expands it to include us. Verse 25, look with me. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And this is true of Jesus, but he's applying it to us. If anyone does this, not just me. Jesus says here that the one who loves his own life, who's in love with life in this world, is going to end up losing his life. He'll get rid of it. He'll end up destroying it. So, when we come to this passage, we might sense some cognitive dissonance. Is Jesus saying that we should cultivate a hatred of life? Is he saying that we should never seek any joy or pleasure in this world? 
Of course not. But he is telling us to die to ourselves, to die to the things in this world, the things on the earth, to die to our lust for pleasure and comfort and self-glory, self-promotion. He's telling us that we only find life after we've lost it, after we lose it. Our, our potential is never reached except through death to sin and denial of self. Your friendships will never reach their potential except through death to self and denial to self, denial of self. Death to sin, we should say, and denial of self. Your marriage will never reach its potential except through death to sin and denial of self. Your relationships with people in this church will never reach their potential except through death to sin and denial of self. Do you want true glory in your home? Do you want true glory in your marriage? Do you want the glory of God to reign in your heart? Then remember, true glory only comes, it only ever comes on the other side of death. Death to sin, death to self. Now this is a foundational spiritual truth, if we want to categorize things that way. But we also see it everywhere we look. It's the way God made the whole world. Whatever you, whatever you want to become musically, academically, vocationally, financially, whatever, death is the key. A story is told of Paderewski, the Polish concert pianist from a century ago, who was told by a flattering woman, Sir, you are a genius. She was just overwhelmed by his genius, and she said, You are a genius. And he responded, Madame, before I was a genius, I was a drudge. His brilliance came through death, through a lot of hard work that wasn't very glorious, through hard work and self-denial. The same principle is true in sports, in studies, whatever you want to do. It's true in marriage. Self-denial is the key. Henry Lydon, a theologian and preacher from the 1800s, put it this way. Sacrifice, meet it where you may, is a moral power of incalculable force. Incalculable force. Your spiritual life, your life in Christ is governed by similar paradoxes. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says that God's power is made perfect. How? In our weakness. Do you want to be rich? Then become poor in spirit. Do you want to be first? Then be last. 1 Peter 5.6 Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. If you want to rule, you must serve. If you want to live, you must die. If you want resurrection glory, 
you must take up your cross and follow Jesus. Unless you die, the vast possibilities inside you won't be released, just like that grain that stays in the bag. If you try to save your life instead of losing it, you'll shrivel up and you'll just remain alone. You must die. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Bobby already read this. This was unplanned. I'm going to read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your reasonable worship or service. Do not be conformed to this world, to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Dying is a daily requirement for spiritual vitality. If your life is stagnant, if your spiritual potential is going unrealized, then you need to die. You need to lay down your life and be released, as it were. Someone once asked George Mueller, what has been the secret of your life? Mueller responded, there was a day when I died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends, end quote. Mueller was a testimony to the truth that dying is the best way to live. And Jesus sums it up at the beginning of verse 26. Look with me at John 20, 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. If you belong to Jesus, then follow him in his self-denial. Imitate him in his death to self. Jesus continues in verse 26, And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. So if follow me is the sum of the Christian's duty, then where I am is the sum of the Christian's reward. A couple chapters later, remember in John 14, verse 3, Jesus will tell his followers, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Those who follow Jesus in this world, those who follow Jesus in this life, will get to go be where he is in the world to come. Okay, so Jesus began, up in verse 23, by speaking the truth about himself. There's a key truth here, and he first speaks it about himself. Verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now we know what that means. In verse 24, he explains how this glorification will happen. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die in order to produce much grain. 
Then in verses 25 and 26, he turns the truth about himself into a truth about you and me and anyone who would be his disciple. We too must fall to the ground and die in order to produce fruit, much fruit in our lives. So are you ready for this? Are you up to the task? Will you hate your life in this world starting today? Will you follow Jesus on the path to Calvary? Will you serve God's son by taking up your cross and following him? Do you want to see Jesus as those Greeks did up in verse 22? Well, are you willing to die with the one that you are eager to see? Paul was. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You can hear Mueller echoing this. And his answer to that woman. And the life I now live in the flesh, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We living in the 21st century see Jesus the same way those Greeks did, ultimately. Maybe they, maybe they ended up getting eyeballs on him. I don't know. It doesn't say if they ever found him and got to see him physically. But in the end, they... We see, they see him the same way we see him. We see him through his words and through his redemptive works. That's how anybody sees Jesus. He told them, I'm on my way to glory. I'm about to start bearing much fruit in this world. Fruit that'll last forever. Grains of wheat are about to start sprouting up Everywhere. And I'll accomplish this, I'll accomplish this fruit, I'll produce this fruit by hating my life in this world, by suffering and dying for this world. And he tells us, as he told them, in light of this, follow me. Come and die with me. That's the invitation. Serve me. Hate your life in this world with me. Be crucified with me. Die to yourself. Die to the world with me. Take up your cross and deny yourself with me. Do this as I have done it for you. If you do, Jesus says, then you, like me, will bear much fruit. Two things are unmistakable about following Jesus in this kind of radical way. One is that it's difficult, and the other is that it is glorious. And we shouldn't miss either one. We have to hold both of these together. The difficulty and the glory. If we only see the hard part, we'll miss the power and the freedom and the joy that accompany the Christian life. 
and all the other aspects of life that God gives us. And if we only see the glorious part, if we're only into the part that is glorious, that makes our heart swell because of the glory, then we, minis- we minimize the necessity of sacrifice. In verses 24 to 26, there are four difficult things, and then there are four glorious things. And I want you to look at those with me. So keep your Bibles open as we look at these four glorious things and four difficult things. First, let's talk about the four difficulties. Number one, you must die. You must die. Verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Dying is difficult. Becoming a living sacrifice, as, as Romans 12 says to do, is difficult. There's just no way around it. Few people actually really do it. Number two, you must hate your life in this world. You must hate your life in this world. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world, dot, dot, dot. Hating your life in this world, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, is just plain difficult. Few people actually do it. Number three, you must follow Jesus. You must follow Jesus. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. So if you say you're a servant of Christ, then you must be following him in some kind of visible way. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is difficult. Few people actually do it. Number four, you must serve Jesus. Number three and four, kind of two sides of the same coin. Number four, you must serve Jesus. Jesus says twice in verse 26, if anyone serves me, if anyone serves me, says it twice, serving Jesus rather than yourself and your passions and your ambitions and your own glory, your own kingdom that you're building, your own idols, keeping them propped up, Serving them in that way is difficult. Few people actually do it. These four difficult things are what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the Lord knew it would be difficult. That's why he says in Matthew 7, verse 14, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he's given us some difficult but doable commands, exhortations, the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. That's Jesus' word, difficult. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's, it's difficult to live this life always dying. It's difficult to hate your life in this world. It's difficult to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross. It's difficult to serve Christ and his kingdom rather than yourself. But, it's also glorious. 
And I want you to look at those same three verses with me again and see the glory that Jesus promises in them. The, the glories more than compensate for the difficulties. The glories that await you on the other side of the difficulties have a way of transforming life even in the midst of those difficulties so that your life becomes the most life, most significant life imaginable. So let's talk about the four corresponding glories. Number one, if you die, you will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit. Verse 24, again, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Your death to sin and denial of self are never in vain. You always reap what you sow in this way. They always bear fruit. God makes sure that your cross-bearing always culminates in resurrection fruit. Sometimes in this life, but maybe you have to wait till the life, the world to come. Number two, if you hate your life in this world... You will keep it for eternal life. You will keep it for eternal life. Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you're in love with this life, with life in this world, as Jesus calls it, that it may be a sign that it's all you've got to look forward to. What Jesus tells you to hate is your life in this world. When he says this, he's, he's telling you to love your life in the world to come. To love it more. He's telling you to store up treasures in heaven instead of treasures on this earth. He's telling you to set your minds on things above as Paul says in Colossians 3, instead of on earthly things, as he puts it. If you love your life in this world more than you love your life in the world to come, then repent and live like the Apostle Paul and George Mueller. You won't regret it. Number three, if you follow Jesus to the cross, you'll get to follow him into glory. You'll get to follow him to glory. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant, you, will be also. So if you follow Jesus in this world, in this life, you'll get to follow him all the way into heaven and then all the way into the new heaven and new earth. That's the promise. That's the glory on the other side of death. Number four, if you serve Jesus, the Father will honor you. The Father, God the Father, will honor you. The end of verse 26 says, if anyone serves me, him, the Father, my Father, some translations say, will honor. Can you imagine being honored by God the Father. 
What's, what's that mean? Isn't it our job to honor God, to honor the Father, to glorify Him? And yet, He looks forward to honoring us, His people, His servants. Jesus says it clearly, if you serve the Son, the Father will honor you. Think about this. Can any honor or pleasure or glory in this world that you might receive by getting some job or some promotion or getting to get by your own house or getting married or being recognized or honored in your field, can any of the, the comforts and the pleasures and the glories, the joys in this world compare to the honor that the Father will bestow on those who follow and serve His Son while they're on this earth? So the four difficulties, you must die. You must hate your life in this world. You must follow Jesus all the way to the cross. And you must serve Jesus. But the glories are that you'll bear much fruit. And you'll keep your life to eternal life, for eternal life. And you'll get to follow him into glory and into the new creation, the new heavens and new earth at the end of history. And the Father himself will honor you in some way that you can't even imagine. So the cross-shaped life isn't easy, but it's glorious. It's difficult, but it's more than worth it. The cross-shaped life stores up for you a weight of glory, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 4. A weight of glory that awaits on the other side. But you can't do any of this in your own strength. Your cross-shaped life, your death to sin and your denial of self just like your salvation has been bought and paid for and empowered by the cross-shaped death of Jesus. His death is first for your salvation and second for your imitation. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for the death of Jesus for us. Help us to follow our Savior and our Master, our Lord and our King, the King of the whole world, by taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, and following Him and serving Him and looking forward to the glories that await us, that are given to us by You rather than the glories and honors of this world. Help us. We need your help to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.